Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Yingyi and Cheng, Portfolio Management Director at Coolabar Capital. And Yingyi's is joined, as always, by Chris Joy. Uh, I'm a Portfolio Manager, also at Coolabar Capital. Yingyi's, it's great to be back. We haven't recorded a podcast since the New South Wales lockdown began, so it will be terrific to catch up on a bunch of recent developments. And let's start with the month of September. September was an unusually interesting month, principally because of the correlation convergence. Whereas Coolabar's portfolios generated robust outperformance in terms of returns, both the fixed income and equities asset classes, I think, really struggled for a range of different reasons. Many listeners will know that global equities slumped in September, falling 3.04% on the back of rising discount rates as the US 10-year government bond yield increased from 1.31% to 1.49%. And if you go over to Livewire and look at my page or our chief macro strategist, Kieran Davies's page, you can find our research on the risks of a US equity market correction, which we published earlier in the year. So this big jump in bond yields ostensibly hurts fixed rate as opposed to floating rate bonds, where of course, fixed rate bond prices decline as yields rise. Australia's main bond proxy, the fixed rate Ausbond Composite Bond Index, which APRA uses to benchmark superannuation funds' fixed income performance, declined by a chunky 1.51% in the month of September, placing it in the worst 3% of months on record, as Australian 10-year government bond yields leapt from 1.16% to 1.49%. Meanwhile, Chris, Coolabar's active composite bond strategy outperformed the index by 0.39% in September net of retail fees and has generated total excess returns over the index of 0.94% in the 12 months to September post fees. The large decline in the composite bond index in September reasserted a positive rather than negative correlation between interest rate risk or so-called duration and equity returns reversing out the negative correlation between duration and equities that is often held since the GFC. Coolabar has repeatedly argued that investors should expect a positive correlation between duration and stocks in inflationary periods. And meanwhile, we should expect negative correlation between duration and stocks in deflationary or disinflationary periods. A triple header of sorts was capped off by the near zero duration Osborne Floating Rate Note Index, recording a relatively rare 0.06% loss in September, placing it in the worst 3% of months since 1999 for completely different reasons. That is, the increase in senior ranking bank bond credit spreads that Coolabar had been positioning to capitalise on for some time. You can read about our research on this earlier in the year over at Livewire. Yeah, Yingers, and I guess as a result of our decision to avoid assets that are likely to suffer from significantly wider credit spreads in the future, uh, which for us include senior ranking bank bonds and residential mortgage-backed securities, and our focus on assets that will likely experience tighter spreads, which include higher yielding government bonds. Coolabar's near zero duration portfolios materially outperformed both floating rate and fixed rate bond benchmarks in the month of September. In the month, we estimate on a preliminary basis that the long-short opportunity strategy returned 1.24% gross. Note that this is an in-store-only product with confidential fee terms, followed by the long-short credit fund, which delivered a 1.1% gross or 1.01% to 1.04% net return after retail fees. The active full capital structure ETF, HBRD, returned 0.24% franked or 0.23% 
unfranked net after retail fees. The Smarter Money Higher Income Fund returns 0.22% gross or 0.15% to 0.19% net after retail fees. And the Smarter Money Fund returns 0.2% gross or 0.14% to 0.18% net after retail fees. So yeah, Yingers, I think our ability to generate uncorrelated alpha in September was driven by a number of core contrarian insights, which included, amongst other things, firstly, avoiding investing in bonds issued by entities based in and or controlled by non-democratic countries on an ESG basis. Secondly, the larger than expected QE3 program that the RBA delivered as it seeks to insure against downside risks. Thirdly, APRA shutting down the $139 billion committed liquidity facility much faster than all banks and investors expected, save ourselves, with positive consequences for government bonds and negative consequences for bank issue bonds and residential mortgage-backed securities or RMBS. And finally, capitalizing on unusually cheap state government bonds that we thought were likely the mean revert. Chris, let's talk about avoiding investing in bonds issued by entities based in and or controlled by non-democratic countries on an ESG basis. The financial market topic of the time seems to be China Evergrande Group, also known as Evergrande, and the news on the 15th of September 2021 that China's Ministry of Housing and Urban Rural Development had informed lenders that Evergrande, the second largest property developer in China, will not be making its principal and interest payments on outstanding debt from the 21st of September. This entire episode echoes the default risk dramas that swirled around another large US dollar bond issuer. China Huarong Asset Management in April 2021 earlier this year, when its failure to lodge its accounts on time triggered speculation that it would renege on its debts. The fears are amplified by the fact that both Chinese companies were perceived to be implicitly government guaranteed or too big to fail. In Huarong's case, it is 64% owned by China's Ministry of Finance. And these companies have issued high yielding debt in global markets that has been gobbled up by many brand name fund managers. Yeah, Yingers, um, Kulba has a very fundamental and yet far-reaching environmental, social and governance or ESG criterion, which is that we cannot invest in securities issued by companies based in or controlled by non-democratic states. As obvious and basic as this sounds, we're not actually aware of many, if any, other investors applying this ESG principle. It's important because it prevents us from allocating to bonds issued by Chinese entities, even though they often pay attractive interest rates, seem to be ostensibly low risk and frequently have very appealing growth prospects. A further well-documented concern for us has been extreme geopolitical risk, and more specifically, the possibility of major power conflict in the Indo-Pacific region between China, the US and its allies, including Australia, Japan and the UK, amongst others. And we're about to actually publish a very detailed academic research where we're unveiling what we believe will be the first global effort to pull together a range of international data sets covering conflicts and correlates of war over the last 160 years and using advanced mathematical and statistical models to predict the probability of different types of conflicts between all nation states over different time intervals and then making this research publicly available via an interactive graphical user interface, which we call the Coolabar War Lab, which should be available by close of business on the 12th of October this month at www.predictingwar.com. 
Sadly, this research implies that the probability of a full-blown kinetic attack between China and the US over the next 10 years is handicapped at about uh, 40%, with the probability of a full-blown war between these two nuclear powers estimated to be almost a 1 in 10 likelihood. While in the event of a full-scale high-intensity major power conflict, most asset classes are likely to be adversely affected and real hedges are going to be hard to find. It is instructive, we believe, for investors to think through the consequences of these contingencies ahead of time. For example, one obvious second-order risk is Chinese entities walking away from their foreign liabilities, as we've seen with Evergrande, and the spectre of the US potentially cancelling liabilities held by its adversaries. This is why we spend so much time thinking about the risk of conflict, modelling the risk of conflict, and forecasting the relevant probabilities. Despite all of this, it's not hard to find via a quick uh, Bloomberg search that most large active and passive fixed income funds, including many ETFs, have substantial exposures to non-democratic states, including China, which also features prominently in global bond indices. Chris, let's now turn to the larger than expected QE3 program the RBA delivered as it ensures against downside risk. Contrary to market hopes for a hard taper of the RBA's bond purchase program, or QE, which would involve only circa $50 to $100 billion of government bond purchases in the RBA's third round of QE, Coolabar had since February 2021 consistently projected that QE3 would amount to more than $100 billion. At the time, few, if any, analysts were predicting any QE3 at all. The final QE3 program announced by the RBA at its September board meeting involved a slower takeoff from $5 billion of bond purchases per week to $4 billion a week through to Feb 2022, which implied total government bond purchases well north of $100 billion. Depending on the final glide path the RBA adopts and the policy optionality it wishes to retain, Coolabar estimates that QE3 should involve total purchases of up to $147 billion, the likely range somewhere between $113 and $147 billion. This QE3 program was substantially larger than the hard taper proponents had assumed. For example, CBA was looking for $50 billion and NAB and UBS were looking for $75 billion. Yeah, Ying, is another thing that we've been forecasting is APRA closing down the $139 billion committed liquidity facility much faster than any banks or other investors expected with positive consequences for government bonds and negative consequences for bank bonds and RMBS. Whereas almost all banks and analysts argued that Apple would not shut down the $139 billion CLF quickly and keep it open for years to come, Coolabar's analysis clearly demonstrated that there was no longer any need for the CLF. And we actually presented this analysis publicly over at LiveWire and in the AFR. This research in turn implied that APRA could shut down the CLF much faster than market participants assumed. And our modelling indicated that it could easily do so over a two-year period. As it transpired, APRA has actually decided to shut it down over a circa 14-month period. Indeed, Chris. And by way of background, the CLF is an emergency liquidity portfolio that banks can in theory draw on if there was ever a liquidity crisis. It was created in 2015 as a substitute for banks holding government bonds when APRA and the RBA determined that Australia's government bond market was not big enough to provide the banks with the emergency liquid assets, which are normally government bonds that are required for regulatory purposes. 
Importantly, this was a global exception to the international banking regulatory standards known as Basel III, which prioritised banks holding government bonds as the preferred form of so-called level one high quality liquid assets or HQLA1. So instead of buying government bonds, the CLF allowed banks to use their own much higher yielding but almost perfectly illiquid internal loans as an emergency liquidity asset. Note that these internal loans historically represented between 70 and 80% of the total CLF. For the RBA and ultimately taxpayers, this created both wrong way credit risk. Note that in a crisis, the RBA would be accepting a bank's internal loans rather than arm's length government bonds as collateral against which the RBA would loan emergency funding to the struggling bank and liquidity risk. In respect of the latter, the RBA's research shows that internal loans, senior bank bonds, and RMBS have a fraction of the secondary liquidity of government bonds. The CLF also permitted banks to buy other banks' senior bonds and bank and non-bank issued RMBS, which, like the bank's internal loans, paid much higher yields than government bonds, albeit with radically inferior liquidity. By buying one another's bonds, banks could both reduce their own cost of funding and maximise their returns on equity relative to the alternative of holding lower yielding government bonds. The COVID-19 shock eliminated the need for the CLF by triggering a huge increase in government debt issuance from both the Commonwealth and the states. When forced to hold government bonds, banks tend to have a strong preference for state government issued securities known as semis, because they offer much higher yields than Commonwealth government bonds. In recent months, state government bonds have paid as much as 45 to 50 basis points annually above Commonwealth government bonds at the 10-year maturity. The universe of eligible government bonds that the RBA assesses can be accessed by banks for the purposes of emergency liquidity has jumped to $1.6 trillion, according to Martin Place's latest estimates. Assuming that banks can hold up to 35% of all outstanding government bonds, this implies that there was about $563 billion of these securities available for them to buy, which meant that there was no need for the CLF. Now, Aussie banks seemed a bit tone deaf to these dynamics, despite APRA repeatedly writing to them and warning that they should assume the CLF would disappear in the foreseeable future. Banks boldly dumped about $110 billion of government bonds between June 2020 and June 2021, actually reducing their ownership share of this market to its lowest level since late 2018. At the same time, banks were buying between 54 and 87% of their peers' bond issues, boldly highlighting their efforts to exploit the internationally anomalous regulatory arbitrage afforded by the opportunity to load up on high-yielding assets via the CLF. On the 10th of September 2021, APRA shocked the banks with the announcement that the $139 billion CLF had to be closed by the end of 2022, and that APRA expected the banks to purchase the HQLA necessary to eliminate the need for the CLF by this time. While this was consistent with Coolabar's forecast, it was a slightly more aggressive timetable than our proposed two-year timeframe. So, Yingas, banks will need to raise cash to buy these government bonds that they have to acquire to replace the CLF, which will disappear by the end of 2022. And much of this will have to come via banks issuing additional debt. Now, we've done an enormous amount of detailed modelling on this uh, for many months, which I think you're going to explain shortly. And we find that Aussie banks are going to have to issue about $168 billion a year in terms of wholesale debt on average for the next three years. And this is driven by two things. 
Firstly, APRO shutting down the $139 billion CLF. And secondly, the need for the banks to repay the RBA the $188 billion it very generously lent them at a cost of just 0.25% to 0.1% annually under the RBA's very cheap three-year term funding facility. Yes, Chris. So the CLF currently counts towards the bank's all-important liquidity coverage ratios, known as LCRs. The LCR represents the amount of HQLA banks hold relative to the net cash outflows, also known as NCOs, that would suffer in a 30-day liquidity crisis. HQLA includes government bonds and cash on deposit at the RBA. The quantum of government bonds required by the banks to hit their 125% LCR buffers, or just a bit above the 100% minimum LCR mandated by APRA, will increase as banks repay the $188 billion they borrowed from the RBA under the term funding facility, because this repayment process mechanically disappears an equivalent amount of excess cash that is currently on deposit at the RBA and which is counting towards the bank's LCRs. We are already watching the banking system make decent headway into both debt funding and government bond buying. Since APRA announced the shuttering of the CLF on the 10th of September, there have been a raft of new public and private wholesale bond issues launched by the banks, including a $2.8 billion of a dual tranche covered bond issue by Westpac in Europe, a $500 million of the CBA Green Senior Bond, which due to its very tight 41 basis point spread, only attracted $875 million of demand, a $1.1 billion of a Westpac RMBS issue, which was the smallest since 2012 and attracted just a $1.1 billion book. Uh, this is compared to the $2.75 billion RMBS issue that Westpac completed in Jan 2020 on the back of a book north of $4 billion. A $900 million Macquarie Sterling Senior Bond issue and just under $1 billion of private placements from CBA, Westpac and ANZ. The RBA has recently published its own forecast of the bank's likely wholesale debt issuance over time to repay the term funding facility, uh, which are broadly similar to our own. To quote the RBA's comments, according to liaison, banks' current plans are to raise a sizable amount of funds to repay TFF funding on or before maturity from wholesale debt markets, thereby at least partly reversing the process whereby debt issuance declined as TFF drawdowns increase. The bulk of scheduled TFF maturities occur in the September 2023 and June 2024 quarters. If banks issue new debt to replace TFF drawdowns in the quarter of maturity, this would require quarterly issuance as a share of assets at levels not seen in over a decade. However, banks are unlikely to refinance their TFF drawdowns right at the time they are scheduled to mature. In liaison, banks have flagged plans to issue bonds earlier than scheduled TFF maturities known as pre-funding, banks can also terminate TFF repos early without any additional cost. Indeed, some banks have indicated willingness to terminate early and issue bonds at around the same time. These strategies would allow banks to spread the refinancing task over a period of time. This would serve to reduce the effect of refinancing on market conditions, as well as offset the effect of approaching TFF maturities on their regulatory liquidity ratios, end quote. Yeah, and as I mentioned earlier, Ying, is our modelling for major bank wholesale debt issuance, including certificates of deposits, projects that they'll have to issue about $168 billion a year over the next three to four years, compared to the $141 billion a year that they averaged over the 10 years to 2020. 
And this includes both the debt issuance required to replace the CLF and the funding needed to repay the $188 billion TFF. In preparing this analysis, we accounted for the bank's current funding positions, including any excess cash that they hold. And we assume that their balance sheets grow at a relatively normal pace of 5% per annum, in concert with perhaps an optimistic assumption around deposit growth of 4% per annum. Any reduction in deposit growth will, of course, further increase their wholesale debt issuance needs. Crucially for markets, the tsunami of bank senior bond issuance will help normalise the credit spreads on both bank senior bonds and RMBS back to around their average levels, evidence in the post-GFC period, if not a little higher. This upward pressure on credit spreads on senior paper and RMBS will be very materially amplified by the fact that banks will no longer be able to get away with the ruse of buying their own bonds under the CLF. To be clear, the biggest buyer of bank senior paper and RMBS, which was the banks themselves, will for the most part no longer exist. We've tried to highlight these risks publicly for most of 2021. We've published a lot of our research on this over at Livewire. But the bottom line is, it means that there's a real risk that five-year major bank senior bond spreads will have to climb from circa 45 basis points over the quarterly bank bill swap rate to somewhere between 60 and 80 basis points over at the very least. Indeed, the clearing level for bank credit spreads might be a bit higher given the dramatically reduced, if not non-existent, bid from bank balance sheets. And just note, we sold most of our major bank senior bonds at around 35 over bank bills in late 2020. Now, another key risk is that RMBS has historically always priced off the benchmark that is the major bank's five-year senior bonds. And we've put charts of this up on Livewire, showing the very high correlation between RMBS and major bank senior bond spreads. And in our view, that means we should see three-year major bank AAA-rated RMBS spreads increase from about 55 basis points over bank bills today to somewhere between 70 and 100 basis points over. The good news is that this overdue repricing will provide all investors with very attractive future entry points. And please note, we sold most of our RMBS in late 2020. And once bank senior paper and RMBS find their new clearing spread levels, the banks should be able to access much deeper investor demand and associated funding opportunities. Yes, Chris, and Coolbar's analyst team has more formally modelled Australian banks' demand for HQLA as a function of a range of factors, including, but not limited to, the RBA's bond purchase program, which creates new digital cash in the form of cash on deposit at the RBA, known as exchange settlement accounts or ESA cash. So when the RBA buys a bond, it deposits cash into the bank's ESA accounts. This ESA cash counts towards the bank's HQLA. APRA closing the CLF by the end of 2022, which needs to be replaced by some form of HULA if banks are below their LCR targets, which can include one, ESA cash on deposit at the RBA, two, Commonwealth government bonds, and three, state government bonds. Next, the banks repaying the RBA the $188 billion it lent them under the term funding facility, which mechanically destroys the same quantity of ESA cash Again, when the RBA lends money under the TFF, it deposits cash in the bank's ESA accounts. Bonds that the RBA has bought under its QE program that then mature over time, which also destroys ESA cash. The change in the net cash outflows or NCOs that are a key determinant of the amount of HQLA a bank has to hold 
whereby banks target holding HQLA worth about 125% of their NCOs. The NCOs are the expected cash outflows banks would suffer during a liquidity crisis over a 30-day period. And other variables such as notes and coins and HQLA held overseas. What we find is that accounting for the CLF closing, the TFF being repaid, the RBA creating new ESA cash by QE3, and many other factors, Aussie banks will probably want to buy between $250 and $450 billion of HQLA over the next three years, over and above the HQLA that they currently hold. Given the supply on offer by the Commonwealth and the states, that should be quite straightforward to execute. Don't you think, Chris? Yeah, Ying, as Corbar's estimates of the $250 billion to $450 billion of government bonds that banks have to buy over the next few years is much, much higher than what the bank's sell-side analysts have estimated. In fact, we're seeing some suggesting that the banks will not have any government bond or HQLA shortage at all as a result of the RBA's QE program. Yet in our numbers, we've actually accounted for a very large $147 billion RBA QE3 schedule. We've also heard some sell-side analysts suggest that the HQLA shortage might only be in the order of $40 billion, which is almost one-tenth the size of what our models imply. It is true the banks have a little time on their side. The HQLA demand in our models really ramps up much more sharply in about 12 months' time. Having said that, banks tend to be very conservative and normally seek to get ahead of these regulatory hurdles. In our view, this is precisely why they are so busy issuing wholesale debt right now and why they have aggressively started buying government bonds. One counter-argument is the banks could just issue all this wholesale debt and sit it in cash at the RBA, earning 0.0% interest, that is, no revenue. While this is theoretically true, the revenue drag compared to the alternative of holding positive yielding government bonds is likely to be unacceptable for most banks. Furthermore, APRA does appear to be imploring the banks to quote-unquote purchase the HQLA they need. That's presumably because the excess cash on deposit at the RBA that the banks currently have, which is over $360 billion right now, and which is already included in their liquidity or LCR metrics, that disappears over time completely as the TFF is repaid and as the bonds on the RBA's balance sheet that it has bought over time through QE mature. Finally, Chris, let's chat about capitalising on unusually cheap state government bonds that were likely to remain with it. In May 2021, Coolabar took profits on a significant share of its state government bond holdings, but retained an exposure to the sector on the basis of our forecast for three key events. First, smaller than expected Commonwealth and state government budgets, which met our projections over May and June. New South Wales, for example, reported a $12 billion smaller than originally forecast budget deficit for FY 2021. Second, the larger than expected size of the RBA's QE3 program, which was validated in September, i.e. $113 to $137 billion versus hard taper estimates of $50 to $75 billion. And finally, APRA shutting the CLF much more quickly than the banks or the market assumed, which was revealed in September, i.e. by the end of 2022 versus consensus views that the CLF would not change materially. As has been well documented, in June, Coolabar was the first to unearth a proposal for the New South Wales government to take on extra taxpayer debt worth as much as $20 billion and $47 billion to allow its investment agency to bet on stocks junk bonds, private equity, and hedge funds. 
This unprecedented idea of a government undertaking a huge leverage equities carry trade would have been a disaster for New South Wales taxpayers if interest rates were to ever climb off their record lows, while equity markets corrected materially downwards from their record highs, care of rising discount rates, which may be a process that we are watching unfold right now. Subsequent to Coolabar launching an activist environmental, social and governance or ESG campaign on this topic, New South Wales Treasurer, now Premier, Dominic Perrottet, resolved in September to repay $11 billion of taxpayer debt to alleviate burgeoning fiscal risk due to the impact of the one in 100 year pandemic, which had sent New South Wales public debt soaring to in excess of $100 billion. Long-time market participants cannot recall any Australian government preemptively repaying debt to reduce fiscal risk in this manner since possibly Victoria in the mid-1990s. As we relayed, credit rating agency Moody's commended Parite, assessing that New South Wales debt retirement would support the state's AAA credit rating. As a result, the state's borrowing requirements will materially reduce over the next two to three years, Moody said. The head of at least one state government debt issuance agency was immediately asked by his own treasurer to explain why they couldn't do something similar. The fundamental difference with New South Wales was Parite's foresight back in 2018 to create a massive fiscal shock absorber called the New South Wales Generations Fund, which he seeded with $3 billion of surpluses and $7 billion from the sale of the first half of WestConnex. This money is held by a subsidiary called the Debt Retirement Fund, which under legislation Parite managed to pass in 2018, requires its capital to be used to reduce state debt and to be managed in a way that maintains New South Wales AAA credit rating, lowers debt servicing costs, and avoids inequitably burdening future generations with unnecessary liabilities. Since June, New South Wales had been forced to pay higher interest rates on its debt than any other major Australian state, which had not happened before. After the news, the market compressed New South Wales' cost of capital inside South Australia and Victoria. The ostensible trigger for the decision was Parite's sale of the second half of WestConnex, which crystallised $11 billion in cash. While technically this must be deposited in the debt retirement fund, Perite declared that it would be, quote, used to retire an equivalent amount of debt, end quote. New South Wales debt issuance arm, T-Corp, subsequently clarified that this would be in the next 12 to 24 months. One thing New South Wales cannot do is simply let its bonds mature, which it would have to repay with new debt. For the $11 billion to retire debt, either the debt retirement fund has to buy back the bonds or it could subscribe to a new New South Wales bond issue to allow the state to repay them. Parite concurrently announced a $5 billion commitment to building infrastructure in Sydney's West, which has been hit hardest by the lockdowns, as we know. After speculation this would be netted off against the $11 billion in debt retirement, T-Corp explained it was entirely independent of it. This money could easily be reallocated from the existing $20 billion in New South Wales capex that was slated for this financial year and has been underutilised. Alternatively, since the debt retirement fund has $3 billion in accrued profits and had more than $2 billion of taxpayer revenue allocated to it last year that was replaced with debt, it could subscribe for a new New South Wales bond that would pay for the $5 billion in West Invest money, should this be needed. This brings us to an important point that has been overlooked. New South Wales has been diverting royalties in state-owned corporation dividends to the debt retirement fund, which have to be replaced by new debt because the budget is in deficit. 
know that this is not legislated, just a policy choice. Perrottet's inspiration for establishing the fund, Peter Costello, who created the Future Fund, says that governments should divert cash to sovereign wealth funds only when their budget is in surplus. It would certainly be oxymoronic for the debt retirement fund to repay $11 billion of debt while diverting billions in state revenue to it that must then be replaced with additional debt. In New South Wales 2022 budget, there was $7.2 billion of revenue allocated to funds in 2022 and a further $13 billion over the forward estimates. As Perrottet is transitioning the debt retirement fund from its savings accumulation phase when he was delivering surpluses into the current fiscal risk reduction strategy as deficits amount, there is clearly a case for the revenues being funneled into it to be returned to the state until the budget is in surplus in line with Costello's maxim. Future New South Wales governments should aspire to replenish Perrottet's fiscal shock absorber with asset sales and structural budget surpluses to ensure it continues to serve as a globally unique counter-cyclical tool. The main goal of Coolabar's ESG campaign was to highlight the risks of the original leveraged equities carry trade proposal and put forward the alternative case for the debt retirement fund to be used for the purpose Perrottet had in mind when he created it, i.e. to reduce rather than aggressively increase fiscal risk. The core governance or ESG concern here was the extreme moral hazard associated with having a state government issue mountains of debt implicitly guaranteed by the Commonwealth and which the RBA was buying to enable fund managers and bankers to line their pockets in a heads if stocks go up, they win, tails if stocks go down, cash payers lose dynamic. All power to Perrottet for ensuring New South Wales taxpayers avoided this fate. And as we've learned, activist campaigns are never easy. You end up upsetting a lot of people. TCOP doles out as much as $100 billion to fund managers, including our peers and those owned by our large shareholder, Pinnacle. Banks lose out on highly lucrative debt issuance fees and any New South Wales bonds they were short selling. And many warned that we would be punished with inferior allocations on new bond issues, although this has never actually happened. And that's a wrap, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, please feel free to reach out with any questions. You can contact us at info at coolabarcapital.com or reach out directly via the Coolabar Capital website. Please listen to the disclaimer at the end, and I hope you have a lovely week ahead. This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.